Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. That kid is back on the escalator again. And don't hurt. Is my boomstick. Game over, man. Game over. Welcome to the Bargain Bin. He is your host, Ben Mason. And he is your co-host, Sandro Luketic. And today we're talking 1989's Stepfather 2. We assume if you're listening to this episode, you've already seen the movie. All right, buddy. You got to let me know. We're both big fans of the first Stepfather film. First, I don't know, mini school reaction before we get into this. How did you feel about this movie? No comment. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I I do find it interesting that this is the first time we've kind of dabbled in the same series a second time. Yeah. Um. Honestly, man, like I love the first movie so much. I think it's one of the best movies we've talked about on this show. So I was really excited to go back and rewatch The Stepfather 2. Um. And I watched it, and then uh, I had to go back and make notes for it. Um, but I needed some help. So I had to call in a friend. Uh, and that friend's name is... Booze. <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound hopeful at all. It was a bit of a rough go. It was a fun watch, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Well, why don't we get into it? All right, man. Um, so I'll just go right into the plot. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, we open with a flashback of the ending of the first movie, reminding us that the first movie was actually good. <laughs> uh, You're really tipping your hat here. Sir. <laughs> uh, our boy Jerry awakens from a nightmare during a thunderstorm to show us that he is still alive and building a model neighborhood. Um as we get an exterior shot of the uh, the building, is in, it's revealed that he is a patient of the Puget Sound Psychiatric Hospital in Washington. It's a horrible name for a hospital, but, I mean, I don't know. It does set the tone. Okay, help me out um, here for a second. Yeah, man. Were we led to believe that he died in the first one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We were led to believe he was real dead. So this is one of those where they were like, let's make a sequel. Isn't he dead? Eh, whatever. Yep. Basically. Okay, all right, because yeah. I didn't go back and look at the first one again, but I was like, we didn't, like, they didn't foreshadow it at all. We just saw that he was dead or assumed. Honestly, I was thinking about going back and rewatching the first one, and then I realized that that would just make me not want to watch this one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Yeah, this is just a a means to explain what happened in the previous film and remind us about the values that Jerry believes to be important and build like a repertoire, like a solid connection between the, the two men really smart move on the new psychologist's behalf. Um, it, it's interesting to see someone try and match wits with Jerry without really understanding how he thinks. Yeah. I'm not sure I bought into this guy, Dr. Danvers. Uh, yeah, I, fr I have his name written down a little bit later on here. I forget what it is uh, on the first name. Joe. Yeah, jo his name Dr. Is Joe. Joseph Danvers. But yeah. it, it, he seemed pretty stupid for a guy that was supposed to be smart. Eventually, yes, he did. 
Well, even um, in general, like, is this the first time he's dealt with a patient in a prison or hospital or mental facility or whatever that he would be this trusting this easily? Okay, well, keep in mind, he's working at a psychiatric hospital that has fucking shop class with, like, working saw blades and little to no supervision. We know that everybody knows that Jerry is a murderer. He's killed other families that he tried to fit himself into. But they'll still let him work heavy machinery unsupervised. That seems an odd decision, if you ask me. Yeah. So after our our quick scene of shop class, uh, we get more talk with uh, the good doctor and Jerry. Uh, Doc's trying to get Jerry to tell a story about what happened with a childhood pet. Uh, The issue of trust is raised again, and the doc tells the guard to wait outside. It's so obvious that Jerry's playing him at this point, right? Like, we're a few minutes into the movie, and we already know what's going on. Maybe it's a shortcoming of the writing. But I don't think. (laughs) But I don't know if it's necessarily Jerry outsmarting him at this point, or him just being too stupid and naive. I feel if the writing was better, it would make it more clear, at least to the audience, that this is Jerry manipulating him and not the possibility of the other guy just being completely foolish. Could be. Could very well be. But to go along with poor writing, the next scene is Jerry back in shop class. I I have never seen anything like that in a psychiatric hospital. Okay, well, let's be honest. I've never been to a psychiatric hospital. But you mean you've never seen anything like that in the cinema in a psychiatric (laughs) you think a psychiatric hospital you don't think functioning heavy machinery workshop or giving them access to anything sharp yeah really but it cuts from there to night and I feel like they were going somewhere with this scene but I'm not entirely sure where I think I might have missed something uh, it's where Jerry is pulling out hair and putting it in a pile of other hair that he's pulled out previously. Um, the only thing I can think of is that that is what he uses for the fake mustache when he escapes the prison. Because... Okay, that's what I was thinking. I don't remember any facial hair, but I'm like, that's the only thing that would make sense. When he does escape, he only has a mustache. Okay. And obviously his resources for props or costumes are going to be limited in a facility that, you know, clearly doesn't give them any freedom, like using power tools. But it is kind of a clever way to get a fake mustache. What he uses as an adhesive, that I don't know. Mm, I didn't even think about that. Well, honestly, I didn't remember seeing him with a fake mustache, but I, I knew it had to be something like that. And then I guess I was just so engrossed in the action of this movie that I, I don't know, it must have just slipped by me. I'm sensing a little bit of sarcasm, sir. Oh, it's okay, because we have another scene at shop class. <laughs> I don't know why, man. Like, yeah, I... Mm, this movie is incredibly frustrating. Uh, not, I, I'm not going to say it's bad. It's just frustrating. Okay. Um, Jerry shows Joe, the doc, on a first-name basis now, uh, his model home and the figure that he made before smashing it against a wall. Um, 
in an attempt, I guess, to, well, he, not I guess, it's deliberate, to show the Doctor that, quote, the eternal optimist believes he can fix whatever is broken, so he keeps on trying. See, I don't uh, think that's what he was doing. Uh, it's obviously his attempt to escape. Yes, and I think that more and specifically, it's an attempt to show uh, the Doctor and the security guard that hostile acts and loud noises might not necessarily be an escape attempt. Mm -hmm. So he can manipulate them into thinking, oh, well, this was an example of, you know, whatever he says, the eternal optimist. But really, it's just setting into the, like, the back of their minds that, hey, if you hear a loud noise or if you see some sort of hostile act, don't think as directly about it as you should. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And like, keep in mind, I, I still think that he started playing him t two shop classes ago. Well, I'm not uh, saying he didn't start playing him. I was just saying that the writing didn't make that clear enough. No, it did not. Um, the doctor, Joe's impressed and begins making notes about uh, progress. And we see that the figure that Jerry made is actually a very well-disguised shiv. I thought that was a pretty cool little plot point. That was... And this is where I was like, why does the doctor have to turn away from him to make notes? You can still be facing him. I've also never seen anybody left-handed write on such a weird angle before. Oh, uh, yeah, dude, I write on like a 45-degree angle being left-handed. All right, then. Yeah, so. <laughs> Weirdo. It's just something that happened over time. I don't know if it's just being left-handed and, I don't know, maybe where the rings on a binder normally are or something. But it just makes it, sense. it's just something that I do. I've never observed it in other left-handed people, but I definitely do it. Well, as a, a right-handed man, I guess I, I just don't understand. That's My okay. Apology. I don't think that this is one of the plot points that the writers were <laughs> thinking people are going to assess down the road in their movie podcast reviews. All right. Well, Jerry stabs Joe in the neck, killing him, and buzzes in the security guard, beats him to death with his own nightstick for stealing his uniform and escaping. Yes. And he escapes um, with a fake mustache. Yes, which I missed somehow. Even though you were uh, fixated on the fact that he was pulling hairs out. Yeah. Honestly, I was just really shocked by how brutal that... that beating was that the security guard got yeah, it it lacked the elegance of some of his kills from the first movie that's for sure it definitely did uh a man gets off an amtrak train and tries to throw his luggage in the trunk but uh has some problems and jerry arrives and offers him some help before killing the man taking his wallet stuffing him in the trunk and taking the car wouldn't this guy know if his luggage could fit in his car at this point you would think so and it honestly looked like it should have. So why not just either A, put it in the backseat of your car, or B, take stuff out of your trunk to put that in the back of your car before putting your suitcase in? No idea. But hey, you know. I mean, Jerry slammed the trunk door on him, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry's got a weird uh, trunk thing in this movie. No? No? Okay, I'll move on. I mean, yeah, he uses a trunk a couple times. I don't know if I'd I call it a twice. weird thing. Yeah. Uh, in a hotel, he's going into full disguise mode, changing hairstyle and wearing contacts. 
uh, not sure where he got those from. But he uh, he orders room service and it's revealed he's assumed that man's identity. I don't know if he's assumed it permanently or at least just because he's using his credit card for room service. Oh, yeah. Temporarily. Yeah. Um, the nightly news reports uh, the escape from the psychiatric hospital. Jerry's looking through the obituaries and has selected the identity of a recently deceased man. Uh, watching a game show, he sees a prize is a house in Palm Meadows Estates. And I really enjoyed the quote that they gave here. That is, family values and easy living will have you agreeing that Palm Meadow Estates is where the American dream becomes a reality. I mean, Jerry sold on that immediately. Yeah, I was just about to say, you can see why Jerry would love that advertisement. It's everything that he believes in. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's your uh, what's your take on Terry O'Quinn's performance up until now? Good. Yeah, right. It's just good. It's not, it's not Terry O'Quinn from the first movie. It's not, it's not our Jerry, man. It's not, but that's not because of Terry O'Quinn. It's because the writing doesn't give you the same Jerry Fairy character. I really wish it was a Jerry Fairy. Um, well, now Jerry's going by the name of Gene Clifford. Uh, and he's looking at a home in Palm Meadows and is already trying to work his way into the life of the real estate agent, Carol, the one and only Meg Foster. I don't know if you recognize her from anything. Do I ever? Honestly, I thought that was sarcasm, and I realized no, he probably doesn't. I uh, help me out here. Uh, played Evil Lynn in Masters of the Universe. Nope. Uh, have you ever seen They Live? Nope. Uh, have you seen Lords of Salem? Nope. Moving on. Uh, he's not happy that there's no basement, but stoked about the neighborhood. He also states that his job deals with family guidance because, of course it does. He's Jerry. Uh, that's that's his gig. It's revealed that Carol lives across the street, and it's just her and her son, Todd, uh, played by Jonathan Brandis. Uh, do, I even, do I need to ask if you know who Jonathan Brandis is? Rest in peace, StarQuest DVS. Is it? I'm pretty sure it's DSV. Sure. Hey, that's still closer than any of the other ones. What about Sidekicks with Chuck Norris? Nope. She wants to celebrate her selling two (laughs) houses and leasing a third. So she tells Todd about the pizza she got and also that she bought him baseball cards. Todd's a dick about the cards and goes upstairs. (laughs) He really is a dick about it. I know. He's... I don't... You don't really know why he's so upset, and they do a really bad job with character development with Todd up until about the midway point of the movie. But I think given what Jonathan Brandis has to work with, he he does a decent job. Oh, yeah. I don't think that he or Terry O'Quinn do a bad job because of their acting. It's because their characters aren't given anything to work with. Jonathan Brandis... Or whatever his character's name is in this, Todd. Yeah. Doesn't even feel like a character in the majority of this movie. A movie called The Stepfather. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I honestly didn't even think about that. But you're right. Like, the scenes that Terry O'Quinn had with Jill Sholin in the first movie made sense. And gave this weird bit of unease to uh, an uncomfortable story to begin with. But... This here, it just kind of seems like 
it's all about Jerry and Carol. Yeah. And but there's a big Todd. there's a big portion in the middle of the movie where we don't even see Todd for a fairly long runtime. You kind of forget I, that he's even a factor. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. The but yeah, whole, he's only kind of used as a plot device and not really a character. The whole time I was watching the movie, I was waiting for him to have a bigger role. Yes, there's a few scenes and we're going to talk about them. Yeah. But it was just striking me the entire time. Like, he's not really in the movie that should be about him because it's called The Stepfather. Yeah. Well, next we get Carol eating the pizza by herself. Well, the news plays a story of Jerry's escape, and she's completely oblivious to it. I think this is the first bit of decent character development we get for Carol. Like, we get a lot of backstory as to who she is, what she does, kind of what her history is. But seeing her reaction to her son shutting her down, she's trying to do something proactive and celebratory. And then just accepting the fact that she's been beaten down and she's alone. Honestly, I don't get why he was such, like, what kid wouldn't want pizza and baseball cards? If they're into that kind of thing, that's awesome. Even if you are mad at your mom, at least in that moment, you'd be like, oh, sweet. And and the weird thing is, the thing that fucking sets him off is that she got him a card of one of his favorite players when he played for a certain team. And his response is, he got traded. And you're like, yeah. That means that car is going to be fucking worth a shit ton of money down the road. Well, maybe not a shit ton, but it, it will make it more rare. Well, yeah, it's going to be a rare card. It'll make some money off of it if the player is as good as he seems to think he is. But like, that's now a collector's item. One of the biggest things that card collectors want is, like, a rookie card. Yeah. How often are those guys still on the same team they started on? Yeah, and Todd's like, you got me pizza and a rookie card? Go to hell, Mom. <laughs> I can see why. Yeah. What's that? You're doing good at your job, too? Get out of here. <laughs> We're going to have a roof over our heads? Up yours. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it is terrible writing, man. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I feel bad that I, I made you watch it. That's okay. Well, good, because there's a third one. Uh, well, we're not watching the third one. I'm going to veto that right now. All right, fair enough. Hey, I made you watch Mazes and Monsters. We're all right. You're right. We are going to do Stepfather 3 then. <laughs> How about you just anyway, keep going? Uh, Jerry is setting up his new home and is watching videotapes from a dating service, which is some of the most painful footage I've ever seen in a movie. Probably the funniest part of this movie. I didn't laugh once. I just felt uncomfortable and wanted it to be over. I guess it takes oh, a certain... Oh, wait, no, sorry. That was actually just the movie itself. I, um, I guess it takes a certain type of humor, but I found it kind of hilarious. Not laughing out loud or knee-slapping, but just like, oh, this is funny because this is so pathetic. No, you're right. It is funny. It's just that kind of humor doesn't, doesn't fit belong. in this movie. No, it does not belong in this movie whatsoever. Uh, it, it's very disjointed. And you could see it in an, in an actual comedy, and it would work very well, especially that one woman who's just kind of staring off to the side the whole time. It also um, doesn't make much sense that he's looking at this, because he's already kind of started to zero in on Carol. Yeah, he's already figured it out. 
So I don't know if this is just like an actual comedy spot that the writers put in or the writer put in, but I don't know. Backup options? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Jerry's having a horribly uncomfortable family guidance session because apparently that's his new job now. We're just thrown right into one of these sessions, not actually given any establishing information that he's trying to set up his own business there. That's one Uh, thing that... Clearly, he's stolen ideas from Dr. Danvers. Yeah. He's using them for himself. And in all honesty, like a family counselor seems like a good idea to find these women that he's looking for from broken relationships because that's what he's targeting. The thing that I don't understand is how quickly he found an entire group of women that joined this group. Without- like they're all in this neighborhood, too. I mean, must be a very high divorce rate or not, because some of them are still together, I guess. But how does he find this many clients this quickly that all are like, we don't need to search credentials? Sure. Why not? This dude. Sorry, go ahead. This dude. This dude wearing what looks like women's glasses and too much makeup is definitely a family therapist that I want. Well, the thing is, we know that Carol's in the group and her friend Maddie is in the group. And I can only assume that they brought other people in. But at the same time, Maddie doesn't really seem sold on it. So is this all Carol's doing? Did Meg Foster lure them in with those strange, creepy, ice blue eyes? I have no idea. I, I don't get it. And then you just get even more creeped out by Sally. Do you remember Sally? Oh, buddy, do I ever. She has a problem with her husband because he wants her to hum show tunes because it gets him, quote, all hot and bothered. But Sally didn't have time to learn the tune to Cats. And Jerry doesn't seem to understand the problem until Sally states that she hums the show tunes when she's kissing her husband down below. He is completely stunned. And all the other women laughed at themselves. His reaction is quite like mine at this point in the movie. I felt really uncomfortable. What the fuck am I watching? That's the same expression he had on his face. Yeah. It almost feels like this was improvised. And Terry O'Quinn's like, how the fuck am I supposed to react to that? (laughs) Nobody told me this was in the script. (laughs) So he just turns to Meg Foster's Carol and just basically gets her to tell her story. Um, We find out that her husband ran off with a... Well, he was a dentist and he ran off with his dental hygienist. Um, And after that appointment, uh, Maddie and Carol talk about Carol and Jerry. I should bring up the point that, uh, that Maddie is played by Carolyn Williams, who I kept looking at and like, I, I know her from somewhere. Me too. And I couldn't. I couldn't figure it out. I had to look it up. And she actually plays the character Stretch from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Yeah. Like, that is it. I she, like the face is there. She has a very unique face. Stunning woman. I don't know how I missed that, but it was great to see her on screen again. Yeah, no, I saw it right away. Oh, you knew it was from uh, she was from uh, TCM 2? Not at all. Oh, just that you had seen her before. No, not even that. Uh, I'm lost. But she was <laughs> I was messing with you, but she was in Sharknado 4, so there you go. I haven't seen it. Neither have I. (laughs) Anyway, 
the next scene, I, I, I really enjoyed this. Um, it's Jerry pulling into his driveway and taking groceries out of the trunk of his car and one of the grocery bags break, um, sending food everywhere along the driveway. Carol, living across the, the street, has been watching him and runs over to help. And uh, as she's helping him pick up uh, groceries off the, the pavement, he says that if it wasn't for frozen dinners, he might never eat. Which prompts Carol to tell him the secret to cooking is finding someone else to do it. And I thought this was her saying she'll make food for him. But then it cuts to the two of them and Todd eating Chinese takeout in her like her dining room. Yep. Is this a... Was it an attempt at a joke? Or is it ignorance in the screenwriting? No. I think she's being literally serious. She yeah. gets somebody else to make it for them. She had pizza ordered or brought home pizza. Now they're having Chinese. She's not a cook either. She doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't make food. Because that's her secret. Get somebody else All to do right. it for you. Fair enough. I thought it was a way of her swooing. Swooing? <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Anyway, I thought uh, it was just her trying to uh, get closer to him and obviously not. Well, it definitely is. She was still definitely inviting him over for dinner. Yeah. Didn't look that good. No, but I mean, but, I guess the idea is that even Chinese takeout is better than frozen dinners. Debatable. Depends on the restaurant. But after Todd leaves, they talk about how Jerry became a doctor. He goes on another spiel about family values before being interrupted by Todd throwing a ball against the garage door. Uh, Jerry goes outside and tries to bond with Todd by showing him the best way to throw the ball. Um, super wholesome scene, if you didn't know Jerry's backstory. Uh, probably one of the better scenes in character development, too, and like showing the bond growing between Jerry and Todd. You want to say one of the better. It's one of the only ones. Yeah, it's it's a rough movie. I'm trying, man. This is not... This is not a movie I would recommend to watch. I apologize to anybody listening to this that actually watched this movie. Dude, especially knowing how good the first one was. Recommendations are at the end of the episode. Spoilers, dude. No spoilers. This movie's fantastic. <laughs> um, but yes, I agree I, with you. This was a good scene between the two of them. Uh, honestly, I think the best scenes are between Jerry and Todd. Um, which is weird because Meg Foster has more acting credentials, more experience. And I think she is a very good actor. It's just she might have been miscast in this role. Um, Terry O'Quinn as Jerry is always perfect. I wish he was in three. Uh, I wish we got to see more of Jonathan Brandis in roles like this. And maybe even in this series because he actually does bring some some weight to a movie like this. I think it would have um, been an interesting twist if in the third one he had grown up to be like the next Jerry Oh, you're just writing money now. That would have been great. I haven't seen the third one. Maybe that is what they do. I haven't seen the third one either. Let's uh -oh. not investigate. Let's just leave it. All right. Well, the next day, he and Todd build a ramp for Todd's bike. Jerry's working on his magic hard on this. Was it bike or skateboard? Uh, I thought it was his bike. And then we see him take uh, a photo with... Uh, uh, Todd holding his skateboard and uh, and Carol in the back, but it might have been a skateboard. 
I don't see anybody these days just making like a skateboard ramp for someone. I feel that people are way too cautious these days. Well, these days, yeah, but this was 89, man. I definitely did this in 89. Well, that's why I'm pointing it out. Bit of a difference between now and then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, sorry. Things get crazy dark as that night, I guess. Jerry tapes the photo that he just took to his wall. And while staring at it, maniacally delivers the line, home sweet home. This is, I think, the moment where I realized the writing is nowhere near as good as the first film. It took you this long? Uh, cautiously optimistic, yeah. Sure. Um, like, I, I really wanted this to be as good as the first, and I honestly don't really think it's that bad. It's just not the same. Um, Jerry's giving another counseling session when he sees a car pull into Carol's driveway. A man gets out, and Jerry's focus is no longer on the discussion. He cuts the session short, saying that he's feeling under the weather. As the women leave, Maddie asks Jerry if he's actually even heard anything she was saying in there. Obviously, she knows something is up. Either that, or he could have just said, sorry, no, I'm feeling under the weather, I wasn't focused. Well, yeah, he could have. And his reaction here is a mystery. But before we get into this mystery, uh, I think it's time that we should take a break to hear a message from our friend Tim. Knights and Nerds is not just an actual play D&D podcast with an original campaign being played by a group of friends who tolerate each other. It's also a podcast where I, the Dungeon Master, talk about how I'm adapting to the choices the players make, as well as revealing to you, the audience, the complex story and deadly twists that I have in store for my players. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or at knightsandnerds.com. Jerry goes to Carol's house to investigate, lying and saying he wanted to know if Todd wanted to throw the ball around. Uh, Carol tells him that he isn't home at the moment, and then the man from before walks into the room. He introduces himself as Carol's husband, Phil. Jerry is polite, but leaves abruptly. Uh, weird character introduction, but okay. Um, back at his house, Jerry angrily starts woodworking, much like in the basement in the first movie. I like how they brought that back, actually, because it's one of the first times we see the old Jerry in this movie. I don't know if I liked it that much, man. No? What? Uh, what's keeping you from that? I think it I might mean, have been... I mean, overacting, for sure, but still. I think it might have been the absence of it. By only doing it in, like, one scene, put, like, a focus on missing how good he acted out these scenes in the first movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there is definitely a lack of solo scenes with Terry O'Quinn because he really was the strong point of the... Um, it almost feels like he has been watered down in this. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, he totally... Totally has been watered down. We don't see the same clever, resourceful, evil genius we saw in the first one. You're right. Now that I think about it, the scenes I really enjoyed about this movie were just worse rehashes of what we saw in the first movie. Mm hmm. Anyway, we'll get into it. Uh, the next day, Carol and Jerry are talking. Phil, I guess, wants another chance with Carol. 
I found that really flaky too. Anyway, Jerry suggests she deserves better and she agrees, but admits to fear of the unknown. Jerry suggests that Carol and uh, have Phil go to his place that evening so they can have a talk and Jerry can figure out exactly what Phil is thinking. Uh, that night, Phil arrives and tries to chat up Todd, who's in a rough mood and not having any of it. And they're like, this is, again, Brand is playing the role of this poor kid so well. Uh, Phil goes to Jerry's place at, where Phil says how he truly feels about Jerry. Bottom line, Phil's a dick. <laughs> Uh, there's a verbal back and forth before Phil stamps out a cigarette on Jerry's carpet and tries to leave, but Jerry stops him and says it was a test. Phil asks if this means that Carol's interested, and Jerry says, definitely. It's interesting writing. Um, kind of throwing character conflict aside, I don't fully understand where they're going here, but I just kind of ran with it. Question. Sure. Why was Todd upset with Carol? I don't know. Like, they, they never really go into it fully. I assume that maybe he was blaming her for his father leaving. But it seems like the reason why Phil left is pretty out in the open. And Phil's not doing anything for Todd. And Carol's trying to do everything for him. See, it would be one thing if Todd was super excited to see Phil. And that's why he's mad at Carol, because he doesn't have his dad in his life anymore. Whether it's her fault or his fault or whatever. Yeah, but not the case, right? But not the case. So it's like, alright, well, if you don't like Phil, why do you have a problem with Carol? I don't get this. He's just a kid, man. It's probably angst, but if that is the case, you think that would be written into the script? And not left up to the viewer to watch. Or to watch to uh, decide. Uh, it just... I don't know. It, there, there's definitely something missing there. Oh, there's something missing. <laughs> Talent? Uh, no, no. He's pretty talented. <laughs> no, I meant in uh, writing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Carol and Maddie are talking and drinking. Maddie lets it be known that uh, she thinks Jerry's weird. She's right, though. Uh, a group of women are sitting around pouring out their ideas and emotions to a complete stranger, much like you said earlier in this episode. Um, I don't know how he managed to get so many people willing to talk about personal details, not only to a stranger, but in front of their friends and neighbors. Must have handed out like two for one coupons or something. <laughs> and that's another thing, too. Are they paying him? How much money is he making? We don't know. How how did he pay for the house? Uh, the dude he killed had a really big credit card limit. Uh, that has to be it, right? He must have like, sold. I know, I know he checked the wallet and he saw a bunch of cash. I'm assuming he had credit cards, but yeah, I mean, you think not enough to buy a house? Not enough to buy a house. Definitely enough to warrant like the bank flagging the use of it, though. See, the thing is, when he was in the mental institute, he made so many birdhouses. And he <laughs> sold <laughs> He's selling personalized shivs. Hey, there's probably a high demand for those. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, there, there are a few weird little plot holes here that just tear the entire movie down. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, back at Jerry's, there's an obvious false sense of calm before Jerry smashes a bottle of whiskey over Phil's head. He rants about Phil's actions before bludgeoning him and stabbing him to death with the bottle. Yep. Jerry's rage, I guess. I mean, we saw something similar last time. Uh, Carol calls Jerry as he's cleaning up the murder scene, asking if he'll tell Phil to call her when he gets back to the hotel. Uh, Jerry agrees before uh, rooting around and finding the hotel keys. He drives to the hotel and starts packing up Phil's things, making it look like Phil just packed up and left. He then Makes... drives Phil... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it makes sense that at least he's trying to cover his tracks. Oh, it's super smart. The one smart thing that they do in this movie. Mm-hmm. He then drives Phil's car with Phil in the trunk to a junkyard. And I don't know why, if it's just rage or something, but he begins doing donuts and spinning around and smashing the car into other demolished cars and berating Phil's corpse. He, th- he then gets out of the car and begins smashing the sides and windows with a piece of rubbish metal before walking away, whistling with hands in pockets. Yeah, Jerry's crazy. Yeah, but he's like, he's unhinged crazy, and they don't really go into it in this movie. This is why I'm saying that the movie didn't give us the same Jerry as in the last one, because in the last one... He had his moments of being unhinged, but it was usually when he was in private. Otherwise, everything was more calculated, evil, rather than unhinged insanity. And you, like, in the first movie, you saw him unravel. You don't really see that here. He goes from being fine to being insane. Yeah, in the first one, there was more of a risk of things, like, losing control and losing what he was building like there was a risk there was a threat in this it's just on and off like a light switch yeah and in the first one he was like we we actually had scenes of him trying to process what was happening and here yeah it is a light switch he'll just go from sane to crazy back and forth back and forth there's there's no real character to it there's nothing we can latch on to I found, like, even though he was obviously the villain in the first movie, I was very interested in the way his mind worked. Here it's like he's either sane or he's not. And there's no link in between. There's no reasoning going from A to B or B back to A. He's just crazy or not crazy. And, you know, you deal with it. Yep. Uh, He makes it home and is stopped by Todd. And how far away is this junkyard? Because it's obviously been pouring outside. Everything is soaked, but Jerry's completely dry. I I don't have an answer to that. Todd wants to know what Jerry and his dad spoke about, and Jerry takes Todd inside and gives him a glass of milk. Todd feels bad about how he talked to Phil, which I guess that's some of his character development that you were touching on. But uh, Jerry does his best to console him, saying that Phil isn't mad at him. And when asked if Phil's coming back... Jerry tells him that that's between his mom and his dad. I do find it weird that Jerry's solution for Todd's feelings is to make a giant sandwich. Again, it it's like a a third hand knockoff version of the Jerry we got only a few years previously. Agreed. Um, Todd asked Jerry about the song he was whistling, and Jerry says that it was a song his dad used to sing. Todd begins to recite it back to him or whistle it back to him. Sorry. 
again, another great fucking scene of Todd being manipulated into looking at Jerry as a father figure. The, these are the good scenes in the movie. They took two of, I, like I already said, Meg Foster is amazing, but I would say the two strongest actors in this movie anyway, that give the best performances, putting them together and actually making scenes that actually make you care. Yeah, which is quite the feat considering what they're working with. Yeah, it's it's rough, man. It's rough. Um, apparently, Maddie works for the Postal Service, which I missed before if they dropped a reference to it and has been going through Jerry's mail. Carol questions Jerry about Phil's disappearance. He says that Phil only wanted a warm bed and a hot meal from her and nothing more. He then says he lied to Carol and that he isn't actually sorry about Phil then kisses her this is not even clever it's not it's lazy writing it, it is. we're gonna get to the the scores this movie got and i don't know if you looked into it nope but i i was shocked and i guarantee when i tell you what they are you're gonna be like yeah uh-huh uh-huh that high really okay <laughs> i can't wait <laughs> uh all all of this um, I don't know. This it's all overcut with uh, scenes of Phil's car being crushed at the junkyard while he's in the trunk. I I, I kind of see what they're going for, but even it's not even that intelligent. It's just kind of it's not even clever. I don't even know what you would call it. Just a sad attempt at trying to be artistic. It's a thing that happened in the movie. It is a thing that happened in the movie. Um, but hey, it's party time at Jerry's place. Carol and Jerry toast each other before taking a tray of drinks to a group of neighbors in the backyard and announcing their engagement, which is what? very similar to the scene in the first movie. Except that it happens how quickly? Very quickly. We're, we're led to believe that Carol was considering getting back together with Phil. Uh, only, a, like, a, what, a handful of days before? Maybe a day before? So there must have been some feelings there if she was considering getting back together. Yeah. Now she's engaged. Yep. Why? Couldn't tell you. All right, then. Maddie confronts Carol and tells her that Jerry... No, no hold on. Sorry. I can't let that go. I can't let that go. <laughs> tell me okay. if them getting married was in any way necessary for the rest of this movie. Um... Only for the setting of the final scenes. And the final scenes didn't require that setting. No, they did not. It just as easily could have been that he was going to move in with her or that they were starting to date. They did not need to get married for this. But then it wouldn't be the stepfather. It would be the creepy boyfriend. This isn't really about him as a stepfather. The majority no. of this movie is him as... The new boyfriend. And the weird thing, too, is if you look at different areas where this movie was released, it had a subtitle. Have you seen the subtitle? Make Make Room for Daddy or what was yep. it? Make uh, Room. Yeah, Stepfather 2. Make Room for Daddy. Like, all right. Well, he doesn't get married. So he's no stepfather nor anyone's actual father. I, I, you know what? I wonder if this was actually a script that already existed and they just tried to doctor it to make it work as a potential sequel to The Stepfather. 
I have no idea, dude. No, me neither. I honestly, I didn't even bother looking up trivia on this movie. Hmm. I, I, I mean, was I mean, even... anxiously await my uh, my ratings for it afterwards. Can't it can't be the same writer, can it? Like, there's no way that the same author did these two movies. I don't think so. Uh, do you have the a second to look up the first movie, or do you want me to do that right now? Because I will. I'm very curious. I have the uh, the writer's name of this one. Uh, give me one second here. All right. There's no way the same piece of shit wrote the first movie. I mean, screenwriter wrote the first movie. I'm very shocked that they uh, they funded a third stepfather film after this. This movie was made in four months. I'm sorry? I'm looking at the trivia on IMDb. This movie was made in four months. This movie was originally intended as a made-for-video release. That makes sense. Okay, here we go. Alright, even the, even the synopsis on IMDb for the first movie is better. After murdering his entire family, a man marries a widow with a teenage daughter in another town and prepares to do it all over again. Sign me up for that. Just put two after the title. Uh oh wow, I had a few writers. Okay. Uh Carolyn Leftcourt, Brian Garfield. Oh, Brian Garfield. Brian Garfield wrote Death Wish, I think. Uh and Donald E. Westlake wrote this partially wrote the story and the screenplay. So there was a pedigree of amazing, amazing writers that did the first one. The writer of this movie is John Auerbach. And I'm going to look him up right now. I apologize to anybody listening who doesn't want to wait, but you're going to have to. <laughs> I mean, we could cut this out. No. <laughs> Feel our pain. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you guys heard it. I've been directed to leave this in the uh, episode. All right, John Auerbach, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's see what other garbage you made people watch. Why are you so hard to find on IMDb? Do you not work anymore? Stepfather. <laughs> Two. Make room for daddy. 1989. There we go. Perfect. Yep. You get credits because of the characters created by the good author or the good screenwriters. That's good. John Auerbach. What did you write, my friend? Oh my on God. IMDb, yeah. writer, it just says this movie. Stepfather 2. Make room for daddy. You piece of shit. <laughs> what did you direct? An episode of Terror Vision and an episode of Monsters. You're not even good enough for Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> what did you get a thanks for? <laughs> it doesn't even say. It just says thanks, one credit, and they don't even put it. Ah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Screw this. Sound department. Okay. Oh, there we go. Quality films. He's a sound editor. That makes sense. He did good work for Liquid Sky, Stranger Than Paradise, Tales from the Dark Side, and Down by Law. Okay, so good movies. He actually has some good movies under his belt. Who let him write? Who let him write this? You know what? We got a great idea. We got the rights to this wicked movie. You know how to write, right? No? What do you do? You edit sound? Can you write? No? No, you can't write. Uh, what if you say you can write and we'll just pay you as the writer? Yeah, you'll do that? Sweet. 
All right, cool. I think we got a good future for you here as a writer. Hollywood career is being built right now. Oh, what's that? The movie sucked? Should have known, man. You're not a writer. Sorry about that. Maybe not try that one again. Fuck. You ruined it. It was such a good movie. Sorry, where was I? You were in the middle of the greatest rant you've ever had. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going back through my notes. You know what the best part is? What? After all that, you have to go back to the plot of this movie. Oh, trust me, I know. I can't wait. Uh, okay, yeah, all right. Party time at Jerry's place. Yeah, same, same, okay. So Maddie confronts Carol and tells her that Jerry... Okay, yeah, this is exactly where I was. Because Jerry, who's also using the name Gene, is only getting junk mail. Nothing from family or friends. Carol basically tells Maddie to back off, and she does so, much to her chagrin. Do you think Jerry Maddie would risk a federal crime, like going and opening someone's mail, or even getting fired, to look into this hunch that she has? I don't know, but apparently John Auerbach thinks that's a thing a character would do. Because it's not like, it's not like, what, she, she hadn't found his journal at this point, right? No, not yet. So, literally because the one day he didn't listen to her in her session, mm -hmm. said he was not feeling well, which in and of itself would explain why maybe he wasn't listening, she no, decides... Possible. I'm going to risk my job in a federal crime because something's fishy about this guy who just didn't listen to me one time. Sorry, I'm trying to regain composure. Uh, I, I should say she is also a very, very good actor and, and does the best with what she was given in this movie. It's just, again, the character is so poorly written. Um, I, I can't blame anybody else for being in this movie because of how good the first one was and thinking like, hey, let's do the sequel. But waste of talent, man. Waste of talent. I agree. But I mean, it also comes down to, for example, uh, Jonathan Brandis. Mm -hmm. When it came out, he really didn't have a lot of credits to his name. So, No, that is true. Right. I mean, you can accept... Uh, a young actor who's trying to find a role doing this movie, but the better ones like Terry O'Quinn should have just looked at the script and said, pass. Yeah, he should have. I'm not really sure what he was doing at this point. Um, also keep in mind too, that it's not like Jonathan Brandis had the, the opportunity to pick and choose his roles. It was definitely his parents making him go. I'm just saying. Can you imagine, like, he's not allowed to watch this movie. And after it's all done and edited together and released, he's like, Mom and Dad, did I do good? Did I do a good job? And they're like, yeah. Movie's real good, Johnny. Real good. <laughs> we'll answer that question the next time you get a movie roll. <laughs> oh, you got another movie bit? Yeah, yeah, you were fine. <laughs> Mom, Dad, my imaginary best friend is Chuck Norris. Mm -hmm. We really <laughs> fucked him up with that Stepfather movie, didn't we, Dolores? <laughs> All right, man. Uh, all right, sorry. Uh, Jerry and Carol have a creepy makeup moment. 
She suggests showering together, and Jerry freaks out because people should stick to tradition. Carol's understandably weirded out and leaves. First smart thing she's done in this movie. In the uh, first movie, he was weird when he had sex with the other woman. Yep. Can't remember her name now. But he still did it. Mm. Why can he now not do it, even if it is part of his disguise? And and that's a weird thing, too, because in the first movie, it was all about having that functional family. And in this one, it's all about portraying stereotypical nuclear family values. So, like, he's going to play, you know, Ward Cleaver. Before it was all about family, and this is all about the personal roles you play within the family. I, I, I don't know why the switch happened, but it did, and it I don't like it. But, I mean, that's where we are now. Um, Maddie continues to go through Jerry's mail. She finds a letter from a high school in Oregon, and she opens it. Not sure how she's going to hide that. And she just never delivers anything and exclaims, what? I knew it. I fucking knew it. See, that's what I'm talking about. Because yeah. if she's going on a very simple hunch, she doesn't have any evidence to go on now. And she opens it and she's wrong. She can't hide the fact that she opened the mail. Well, the thing is, it, she doesn't even have to be wrong. He can just say, I had a friend of mine send me this. My friend told me about something that they saw, and this person had the same name, and they thought it was funny, and I asked them to send it to me. Bam. He's in the clear, and she's going to jail. Yep. But this is not the same clever Jerry we know. No, and the next scene ruins the character for me completely, because it's a cut from there to Jerry eating a hearty bowl of crispy rice at the breakfast table, and he has to listen to it before he's cool to eat it. He's more cartoonish in this movie, and I don't know why they're making him a buffoon when he was a force to be reckoned with in the first one. He was super creepy in the first movie. Do you think that the writer saw the first movie? The one and only John Auerbach? <laughs> Do you think he actually the saw The writer it? of all writers? No, there is no way he saw the first movie. You know what? Maybe you do the notes for the next movie. Nope. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, the phone rang and he answered it. Uh, he meets Maddie at a park bench and things are super awkward. She calls him out for lying to Carol about his past and Jerry's rather angry and threatens to report her. She provides photo evidence of a black basketball team that he that proves that Jerry isn't who he says he is. Uh, Jerry really fucked up bad on this one. Like he is so much smarter than that in the first movie. Um, Maddie threatens to tell Carol, and Jerry asks if she'll let him tell let him sorry tell her the truth by five p.m. that day. It's almost like a very AJ Corey Empire Records by one thirty-seven exactly, Joe. Um. Why Jerry would she let him? I don't know. I have no idea. That is nothing a friend would do. Especially one that was clearly not trusting of this person in the first place. No. She 
had such a bad feeling about him that she's willing to commit federal crimes to prove that he's not only lying, but potentially manipulating her friend. Finds out that it's true, gets him to admit that's what he's doing, and then trusts him to take care of it. Yep. That's that's it. That That's her character arc. Uh, uh, Jerry apologizes to Carol with flowers before saying there's a lot more than this, uh, or a lot more to this apology. Carol decides it's sexy times and discovers Jerry's scar from the first film. He blames it on a patient from his practice. Okay, writing there. I'll, I'll let Arabach have that one. Yeah, that one kind of fits too, and it also gives him a reason to cover up why he didn't want to have intercourse with her earlier. Oh, I was yep. afraid what you would think if you saw these scars. Honestly, shit like that really, really makes me think rewrites. Like there was a ghostwriter there because that's too smart for the rest of the movie. It's possible. Uh, Maddie hasn't heard from Jerry, so she calls Carol to tell her what she discovered. There's no answer, but a sound in the house spooks her and she grabs a letter opener she turns on the lights to the kitchen to reveal absolutely nothing. Then walks into another room to lock the door and a cat falls out of the garbage can. Why hug the cat and leave all of the garbage over the floor? It's not even her cat. Fine. I don't know. That's Jerry sneaked up. A little bit of Sorry? misdirection. A little bit of misdirection in this one. They're playing with the audience a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Was the door open, though, or did she just lock it? I don't feel like she closed it. I don't know. So it's just like a stray cat in her kitchen garbage can. Dude, can can I make a confession? You didn't watch this movie, did you? No, I watched the movie. Okay, yeah. What uh, was it? But what do I tell you about every movie we review? I watch it twice. Mm -hmm. I did not watch this one twice. I watched I, it once, and I was I done with it. Yeah, I understand. I'm sorry. I might be tipping my hat a little bit now. <laughs> you loved it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, one time, and I was like, done. This is the greatest movie of all time. All right. Well, we're getting closer to the end here, sir. Sweet. Jer Jerry sneaks up behind her and strangles her with a belt from a bathrobe. Not a bad murder scene, actually. Uh, he cleans the murder scene and tries to, or types a suicide note from Maddie after hanging her from the kitchen ceiling. Whistling, he jumps the fence before almost being spotted by a neighbor. He returns to Carol. Yeah, spotted. I see up. what you did there. Uh -huh, right? Regular John Auerbach. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> he returns to Carol, who's just waking up, and presents a bottle of wine he took from Maddie's house. Oh, come on, man. It's so stupid. It is so stupid. Taking evidence from the scene. You j just move on. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, the we next didn't morning. Sorry, we didn't talk about it earlier, but like, there's a scene where Maddie tells Carol, like, oh yeah, my parents got me a case of this wine as a gift. So mm -hmm. he takes one when he kills her. Now, he wasn't there to hear that, but he should at least know not to take evidence from the scene. He's so much smarter than he is in this movie. Like, in the first movie, he is a genius. Not according to John Arbach. Apparently not. 
<sighs> All right. The next morning, Carol gets a call with the sad news of Maddie's death. Super fast transition of scenes going from funeral at the church to the empty house with Jerry and Carol standing inside. Like a matter of seconds. Carol is understandably upset. There's a rapping at the window and Maddie's neighbor who almost caught Jerry the night before is there to return keys. Shocker, the neighbor is blind. He states that he heard somebody leaving Maddie's house that night whistling Camptown races. Yep. That would have fit in a thriller from, I'd say, maybe the 40s. But here we are, 1989. All right. Jerry is angry that Carol wants to postpone the wedding. He's starting to lose it, and we know what happens when Jerry's unhappy. But Carol is still totally into the relationship, and we just jump right to the wedding day. Does it feel like there's a lot of not just rewrites, but scenes that were cut? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, the the second half of this movie is just on fast forward. Oh, man, I I typed faster than I've ever typed before when I was watching the last half of this movie trying to make notes for this episode. Uh, Todd gives his mother a wedding gift from Maddie's parents, which is a box of four bottles of wine, before going to get Jerry to fix his bow tie. She still doesn't get it. Nope. Carol realizes at this point afterwards, though, that the bottles of wine from Maddie's parents are the exact same as the bottle of wine that Jerry brought back the other night. She questions Todd when she hears him whistling Camptown races and then finally puts two and two together. She confronts Jerry about the wine and asks him where he got it. She then calls him out about the night Maddie died and Jerry goes into full Jerry meltdown. Now, full Jerry meltdown in The Stepfather was unnerving and scary. Full Jerry meltdown in The Stepfather 2 is sad and pathetic. And almost comedic. Agreed. Jerry attacks Carol and Todd breaks it up, but is chased down the hall and into a closet where he's locked in. Jerry tackles Carol and she stabs him in the hand with a steak skewer, which honestly did look good. Um, he punches her through a table. Also looked pretty intense uh, and is ready to finish the job. She grabs a knife and stabs him in the chest and the two fight back and forth. Todd pops or pops the pins out of the hinges of the door and rushes to help his mother. Jerry pulls the knife out of his chest, ready to stab Carol, but Todd arrives just in time, yelling at Jerry to leave his mother alone. Todd smashes Jerry in the arm with a hammer, which looked great, that he uh, took from the closet, forcing Jerry to drop the knife. Uh, Jerry falls to his knees, and Todd buries the claw end of the hammer into Jerry's chest. Also looked really good. Uh, and then he helps his mother to her feet. Cut to the wedding chapel. Everyone is ready for the ceremony to begin. The organist commences Here Comes the Bride as the doors open, but reveals a blood-soaked Carol and visibly traumatized Todd. Screams erupt and people begin to flee. Jerry manages to get to his feet, but falls against the table that once held his wedding cake. Carol collapses at the altar. Jerry tries to utter Till Death Do Us Part, but dies mid-sentence. And credits roll. I hate you, man. I hate me too, man. I am so sorry. I remember enjoying this movie, which leads me to believe that I saw it before I saw the first one. 
Because without a point of reference, this movie is not terrible. It's just a mediocre 80s horror thriller. Having seen the first movie, the masterpiece that it is, and then watching this absolute piece of shit. Thank you, Mr. John Arbach. Uh, I, I feel really bad for recommending this. I feel bad for making people watch this and then listening to this episode. Hopefully they got something fun out of listening to us complain about it. But I think we have a bit more complaining to do. Do we want to go through some awards right now or do you want to go into the uh, the numbers? Numbers. All right. Oh, I jumped on well, that. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That is A-OK. The budget for this movie is estimated $1.5 million. The worldwide gross of this movie was $1.5 million. Typo? I don't believe so, no. Um, this was direct-to-video, yes. Or no, wait, it got a limited theatrical run. Um, breaking even means that they probably lost $1.5 million. See, I would have thought that at the very least, when movies, like when a sequel comes out, if the first one is good, you think that people will go see it just based on the goodwill that the first one garnered. Right? And in this case, the first one was great. That's why, like, the opening weekend for even a bad sequel is usually pretty good from a number standpoint, is because people are going off of the, the their their memories and feelings of the previous title before, you know, a lot of the word of mouth or reviews have come out. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, man. I really don't know. Um, I fucked up this week. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, IMDb's ratings, I they're low, and I still think they're too high. IMDb, it's sitting at a 5.7. Not um, a chance. No. Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score, I'll go with that first, was 34%. What's your stance there? I mean, it's better. The tomato meter with five critic reviews is sitting at a hefty zero. What? Yeah. Has that ever yep. happened before? A zero? Uh, not for us. Um, it's bad. I mean, we're we are not film critics. Well, I mean, you know, we're kind of film critics, but we're not actual Hell, film critics. The majority of the time, I'm not a film viewer. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I'm zero sounding pretty good right now. <laughs> <laughs> zero sounding a little high right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's uh, let's go into some uh, awards here. What do you say? Yeah, let's do some awards. Uh, what did you have for worst performance? Uh, I I feel bad for worst performance because I have Meg Foster as Carol. Um, Meg Foster acts the same in everything she does. She just needs to be cast for the role properly. And here, I don't think she was. You don't think you need to feel bad because other than wanting to put John Arbach on here, because <laughs> he really was the worst performance yeah, in his performance of writing, I had Meg Foster as well. There's just something missing. Emotion. Uh, ooh. If you look at this movie, her quote-unquote excitement when she brings home the pizza 
and the baseball cards and is doing well in business is almost the exact same delivery as finding out that Maddie is dead. Yeah. There is no expression in her in this movie. I don't know why we couldn't get that out of her. When she's putting it together that Jerry is a murderer and she's angry, she just speaks a little bit louder. Yeah. There was no emotion. I... I well, it was not even a difficult choice for me to put her in worse performance. And with her role in Masters of the Universe, uh, and actually to an extent in They Live, um, she plays a very cold character, like ice cold, like her eyes. And it, it fits. Like, she fits those roles really well. Um She's not a sympathetic character in this movie. Well, she's supposed to be, but she just isn't. It's because you like, can't she, you can't relate to her because she shows no emotion. Exactly. She never felt even close to being a victim in the sense of the family in the first film. You just don't care. You don't care. That is it. You nailed it, man. You just don't care. And it's sad because she's not a bad actor by any means. It's just she's not right for this character. I, I, I don't want to rip on the casting director because they they also nailed it with a few of the, the casting choices. But like Meg Foster was wrong for this movie in every possible way. I love her, but not here. And yeah, definitely the worst performance. Honestly, you look at her performance and it's almost like she knew what this movie was and just phoned it in. And that could very well be. It could. All right, so what did you have for best performance? Terry O'Quinn. Tied with Jonathan Brandis. Oh. I just had Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, Terry O'Quinn, I mean, he was dealt a shitty hand here. Uh, The Jerry that we got in this movie is a watered-down version of the amazing Jerry character that we got in the first. But... Quinn will always try to deliver and he did his best with a poorly written character in this movie. Jonathan Brandis, however, seems like he did absolutely amazing with nothing to go on. Yeah. I mean, I had to pick, I, I thought I would just pick one and I went with Terry O'Quinn because none of the problems with Jerry in this movie are based on performance. It's all writing and directing Mm -hmm. and Terry O'Quinn still makes you believe at some points not necessarily in the plot but just that this character still has some redeeming qualities and it just it just it it's sad because it stands out in a mm-hmm. terrible movie and it's just out of place it is it it's really is sad and like we didn't even get fucking jerry fairy nope what did you have for most memorable line? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? There's, there's no memorable lines in this movie to me. None. You kind of spoiled mine. Yeah, what's your most memorable line? Alright, so I uh, rewound and got the word for word on it. It was when Sally says, He likes me to hum when I when I kiss him down below. Man, it was all- I am so, I'm so sorry. It was only memorable because it was 
pretty ridiculous and awkward and kind of funny. It's amazing that the most memorable line in this movie was one of the most inconsequential characters and had nothing to do with the plot. You know what's weird about Sally is she's comedic relief. Yeah, but like, this has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And it is the most memorable line. Yeah. All right, last award. I feel bad for the actor that played Sally. Because that that's what we know her for in this horrible piece of shit movie. <laughs> and your most memorable moment or scene? Uh, there isn't one, actually. Um, I think it, it's pretty much any scene where we see Jerry and Todd together like it's like any scene where jerry is manipulating todd's perception of him i think is really well done and i do remember that relationship more from like the first time i saw the movie years ago where it's almost like jerry can mold todd to believe that he is in fact the perfect dad where he failed doing that with jill's character in the first movie I think that's the only time where I think they did something a little bit better in this than they did in the first one. I mean, you say a little bit better. My most memorable moment or scene is actually for two reasons, one good and one bad. (laughs) Was it when it came up on screen written by John Auerbach? No, no. I mean, I was tempted to say when the end credits rolled, but uh, (laughs) it was when Jerry was doing donuts in the scrapyard. The reason that I say for a good reason and a bad is because good, it was fantastically delivered scene by Jerry or Terry O'Quinn. Sorry. He's unhinged. He's enjoying this absurd act of doing donuts. He's talking to fill in the trunk. It's 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 a very interesting delivery. The reason that I say it's also bad is because that highlights the unhinged and less methodical nature of the Jerry we were accustomed to in the first movie. I think if I had not seen the first one before it, this would have just been my favorite scene because you know, it's almost like a, a like a Joker syndrome in a Batman movie where like he's gleefully enjoying the insanity of what is taking place. What you're saying there? Um, I can get behind that. Yeah, especially if I hadn't seen the first movie. Yeah, definitely. But that's why I say there was a good reason and a bad reason, right? Mm-hmm. It's a scene that stood out for me because knowing the Jerry from the first one, it doesn't feel like something he would have done. But it was also no, it... a really well done scene. So it was memorable for multifaceted reasons. But those are our awards. Yeah. So yep. this those is going to be... Awards. This is going to be one of our shorter episodes, and I think for very good reason, because of the the material. Ben, why don't you get to your final recommendation? Um, hmm. That's, hmm. I love the first movie Mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. Um, this movie sucks, Mm -hmm. but I'm still glad I watched it because it shows how good the first movie is 
Terry O'Quinn is still good in this, but seeing how cast and crew came together to make the first movie what it is when comparing it with this, it makes the first movie look so much better. Um, it's nice to see Terry O'Quinn as Jerry again. I always like seeing Meg Foster. Unfortunately, we already agreed that it's the worst performance in the film. Jonathan Brandis, who left this world way too soon. He's stellar in it. Um, the directing for what it is, it's okay. Uh, John Auerbach could burn in hell. Um, <laughs> Drastic. Um, it's not a good movie. Um, if you've seen the first one, definitely watch this one. No. Uh, yeah, definitely. It will make the first one seem like the first movie is almost perfect. And this will make it seem even better. Um, I will not recommend this movie to anybody who hasn't seen the first movie. Um, shit, man. This, this is a tough one because it shows like two different examples. The first, what to do when things come together perfectly. And two, what to do when you're trying to recreate something that was just a force of nature, but you don't have the skill or talent behind it other than some of the actors. Um, it's a good pairing. Uh, if you haven't seen the f first movie, stay away from this one altogether. If you're not a horror fan, actually, just stick with the first one and forget this movie even exists. Um, honestly, the if you want to see another Stepfather movie, watch the remake. It is hands and fists better than than this garbage. Uh, I, 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 fuck, man. I feel so bad because I want people to watch Terry O'Quinn more. Okay, all right, I've decided. Just don't. Just don't bother. Short and simple. Took Watch you, the first movie. Avoid this. It took you way too long to come to that natural I'm so conclusion. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just... I want people to give movies a chance, but this one's... It's a rough go. Do not give this movie a chance. My recommendation is to stay far, far away from it and just watch the first one. And if you've already seen the first one, just watch the first one again. <laughs> this movie... To be honest, even before watching this movie, I let myself get a little excited because I enjoyed the first one and I enjoyed Terry O'Quinn. But reflecting back on it, it's the type of movie that doesn't need a sequel. The premise doesn't. doesn't really open itself up to repeat the story again. Even at the end of the first one, you think Jerry is dead. Why resurrect him for this? Like, yep. There's some movies that have a stellar premise that can be done good or bad but regardless should be left to lie where they are they don't need a sequel this didn't need to be expanded on i don't even know how they're going to do a third one i don't intend to watch it regardless you can just make one movie and make it good and leave it at that this movie yeah. did not need a sequel and yeah beyond Very... that yeah go ahead Beyond that, if you're gonna make a sequel, take the time to do it right. Because so much of this felt rushed. It felt haphazardously thrown together. Regardless of writing, it feels like there's so many scenes missing from the movie. There's so many plot developments missing from the movie. It feels almost like somebody did a Cole's Notes of what a second movie of this should have been. Yeah. Don't watch this movie. The The first movie, every character had soul. 
Uh, and in this one, it's only Todd. And he's not in it enough to warrant a viewing. So, yeah, I agree. Stay away from this movie. Just stick with the first one. Like I said, if you need to, if you absolutely need to see more, watch the remake. But in all honesty, just stick with The Stepfather. There's nothing wrong with just watching the first movie and leaving it at that. There's Let nothing wrong with that. And that's what I've always said about Terminator and Terminator 2. Just watch the first one. You don't like Terminator 2? <laughs> it's a joke. Fuck off. Whew. <laughs> I don't think you've I don't think you've earned that joke tonight. Yeah, no, I know. I know. I'm I'm in the doghouse right now with this recommendation. Eh, we've all done it. Anyways, if you guys have seen the movie, hopefully you haven't, and you've just listened to this episode, but if you have, let us know what you guys thought. Let us know what your awards were. You can hit us up. We're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, we're on Twitter. All of them just search BS Bargain Bin. Or head over to anchor.fm slash bsbargainbin to check out the new episodes. Until next week, though, we need to know what we're watching for that episode. Ben. Yes, sir. What movie is it this time? Well, this time there's a, it's a blind choice, actually. I've got two movies. I'm not sure which one to pick. Both have a similar theme. So I'm going to say, Sandro, are you going to pick movie number one or movie number two? And you've predetermined which one's one and which one's two. Yes. One is in my left hand. Two is in my right hand. Okay. In honor of the stepfather two and that this movie was a steaming pile of number two, I'm going to go with number two. Number two. All right. Number two is the 2005 werewolf film Cursed. are happening. Things I can't explain. Ellie, what's wrong? Just having a really bad day. Can I help? Last night, a young woman was attacked and killed. regular dog something's wrong the only way you can break the curse is to kill the person who started it all oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to scare you i just i needed to talk to you all right That should be interesting. Until next time, have a good one. All the best, guys.